Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Eve in the Room with Scotch. I'm Michael Lilienthal. I'm pulling this podcast over. You can't do that. Um, Whatever is happening right now, I'm very worried about, and I need you to not. But whatever is happening right now is exactly how it's supposed to be. So... Are you saying it was written up yonder? It was written up... If yonder means Google Docs, then yep, that's where it was written. This script that I'm reading from is <laughs> exactly how it was yonder. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've argued... You've stunned me into silence. Good. I'm We're... going to take a pinch of snuff, wind my watch, and let you go on. <laughs> that's exactly how this is supposed to work. Uh, we are talking about books, not about scotch. I'm Michael Lilienthal. This is my guest, Ethan Bartlett. I am very worried. Yep, you should be. You should be, because you made us freaking read Don Quixote again. (laughs) I'm not going to talk about that right now, though, because we are still drinking, if you paid attention and were listening to our last couple of episodes, we are listening to and drinking Polly's Cast. Hopefully we're not listening to Polly's Cast. Well, I don't really have anything interesting to say. Sounds like the ocean. Um, How are you doing? Good. Polly's Casks, Double Barrel Aid, Thailand Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. Uh, that's what we're drinking. Um, so, do you want any top off, Ethan? I am good for the You're moment. You're good. I'm going to have a little bit myself. I need it, as you can tell. Yeah, you. De- what you definitely need right now is some scotch. <laughs> Don't I always? Get your wife in here. Hey, Karen. In Please in here? Don't look at me like, come on. You know I love you. Karen, what are the rules? Rule one, once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two, no one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three, Ethan must never say the phrase first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four. Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. listener. Okay, thanks. (laughs) Uh, alright, so... Slancha? Brost. So now, we're talking about this book, Jacques Le Fetiliste, by Denis Diderot. Alright, if you're going to do the French title, you got to do the whole French title. What's the whole French title? Whatever and his master is in French, plus what you said. A... Master. Yeah, got him. <laughs> Crap. I only took one semester of French, give me a break. Yeah, I mean, I took... 
three years of French, but it was high school French. Yeah. So, so. we basically took the same amount. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so, yes, this book uh, by Denis Diderot. I already kind of buried the lead already. It's 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 Don Quixote. Uh, well, except it's not because except it's, it's Tristram Shandy. <laughs> yes, I was going to say that too. It's also Tristram Shandy. Which um, you can't say because the book itself references Tristram Shandy. Yeah, twice. Twice. Oh, man. In fact, it bookends itself with Tristram Shandy to a point that today I think would be called Plato... I was about Plato- to say Platalism, Platalism, which seems right, Platoism also wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah, don't even get me started on the Plato. Anyway, um, gentle listener, as I had to do last episode, I'm going to translate for my English-speaking host, Michael, and say that we are reading Jacques the Fatalist and His Master by Denis Diderot. Uh, or, uh, Jack the Pessimist and the Guy He Listens To by Dennis Diderot. Um, Is he a pessimist or is he a hedonist? Yes. Um, he's definitely at least one of those. (laughs) So, if you haven't read it already, we're going to remember We are going to remember. Good job. I'm proud of you. I would like to apologize because for a long time I've thought that podcasts were released on cassette tapes. Um, and that's obviously wrong. So pause, hit pause on your oh Walkman. No! So that you can hear that little Ugh. woof, woof, woof of the CD spinning around. You no, know, I should take our leaps and bounds as they come in baby step form. I was going to say, even when they're sort of hops, very yep. new school hops. Yep, yep, Um The hop of a banjo frog. Very good. Thank you. Uh, anyway, go read it. It's good. Yep. Wasn't it good, like we told you, or did you hate it, like we expected you to? Yeah, I, I don't expect, <laughs> I don't necessarily expect anyone except me to love this book forever, <laughs> but I do love this book forever. I know what you mean. So, okay, I, I want to, I want to share some of my experience with this, reading this book. Yeah. I, I read about 60 pages of it in one sitting, at one point, and uh, before laughed. I had assigned it or after? No, after, after. Okay. Like as as part of you know our podcasting right. here, I, I read about sixty pages of it in one sitting and laughed hysterically the entire time I was <laughs> reading it to the point that my mother in law, who was watching some reality show about houses on Netflix, so thought I was insane. Forty percent of Netflix that you've just described. Yeah, that's not the point. Nope, but she thought I was insane because I was in their living room as I was reading it, because my wife was helping with something there. But not not relevant. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was laughing hysterically, because this book is stupid funny. Yeah, absolutely. J- dumb funny. Yeah. It's, like, it, it's the sort or, of funny where, like, if, if this sort of humor were put on TV today, I'd be like, yeah, it's not my show. <laughs> but it's Which so... is fascinating for someone who was literally considered one of the greatest philosophical writers of his time. Right? That's not what I was expecting. Yeah. I was expect when I came into this I was expecting a little more of a Socratic dialogue sort of philosophy sure. thing granted with some more plot because I knew it was a novel but you knew it claimed to be a novel it, it claims to be a novel even though it also doesn't it claims the exact opposite also I'm trying to see 
I could swear somewhere on one of the title pages. No, it's in the text itself that it claims to be a novel. That's yep, what and the text itself also claims that it's not a novel. Yeah, it does. Um, which you can't believe that, obviously, because this stupid narrator... The third-person narrator is unreliable. Very unreliable. He's also sometimes a second-person narrator. Yeah. Which is dumb. <laughs> um, okay, so, yeah, the, this book is fascinating. Um, I would like to parallel your your personal revelation with my own. I first read this book about a year ago. Okay. Um, and I actually had a similar experience. Like, my, my wife and I had gone on, like, a just weekend getaway type thing where we were in a hotel room doing basically the same thing we would do at home on a weekend, which was lying on a bed side by side reading different books. Um, but I was cackling hysterically a lot of the time and I finally looked at looked at her, and I was probably about sixty pages in, give or take. And I said, "I wish I were already rereading this book." <laughs> um, and so I knew it had to come up on this show eventually, uh, and you know, so it, it it finally did, obviously. And it, like I say, it was just about a year in passing between the two. And I sort of when I was rereading it. I almost wish I was reading it a third time. I, I um, can definitely see that. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Um, so, also, an, one other thing I would like to say, yeah. and I'm going to flirt with um, getting myself in trouble here, Yeah. but uh, just, to, just to pull the curtain back even a little bit more on this show, um, astute listeners may be shocked to learn that we do record four episodes... <gasps> At a time of this show, at least in the same day, before letting some time go by and and doing another block like that. Um, So, uh, again, it will shock everyone to learn that we recorded the seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. Um, We finished that within probably less than an hour of starting this current episode that we're in right now. Correct. Except we're not in it when you're listening to it, because fate has already... Been sealed. Yep. <laughs> um, but anyway, so that it is happened. as it has always been. So of course that would, if you if you do the math on this, um, that would mean the last block involved us doing first um, the planes by Gerald Murnane. Yeah. And then Solus by yep. Gail Carriger, which um, not to uh, throw any shade on anyone's work here, but. The Plains was a much more cerebral book, I think it is completely fair to say, yeah. than Soulless. Um, so I think the order, considering the rest of the concept of this show, the order that we did those two in... Made sense. Made perfect sense. Yep. Because in the later episodes, for some weird set of reasons, we aren't always as sharp as we are on the first episodes. I don't, I don't know why. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't either. It's a mystery to me. It's like there's something... There's a thing leeching the in the ourselves from what would you call that? I don't know. Sort of werewolfian? Uh, yeah, probably. Okay. Yep. Got it. Um, <laughs> uh, so I might be laying the groundwork for you to parasitic. Not, parasit ah, that's not quite the word though. No, no. I was gonna say I might be laying the groundwork for you not to be allowed to say werewolf by sort of by analogy. proxy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which might be a long-term Maybe that'll be a rule that you're not allowed to say werewolf. That would be anyway. a good parallelism. Right? But nothing if, that, if, not parallelistic. if that rule were invoked, 
were were created, then we would have to create your Schrodinger's cat rule. It's true. That's yeah. true. We don't want to do that. Don't we? No, probably not. Some of Did you have don't. more to say about the I did. pulling back the curtain? So, all I wanted to say was that we've already recorded, recorded seven and a half deaths, which seems like a pulpy one, but... At least compared to this. Yes, at, at least compared to, like, the... The sections of Barnes and Noble that you'd find these books, right? In. Um, but I feel like us being more, how would you say, with it while recording that one actually makes more sense. Yep. As we get into this yep. one and are less with it. Yep. I was gonna say like the cerebrality of the books is not the sole determining factor upon the origin. Right. Um, <laughs> in a in a similar way to it being completely appropriate. If we did Tris from Shandy after doing a full four-hour recording of this show, right? It's very appropriate that we do this one second. This one second. Yep. No, I agree. Uh, I had similar thoughts, and I. Okay. Okay. So this book is nominally philosophical, and I wouldn't say necessarily only nominally. Well, right, because it does have nominalism in it, but it goes beyond. <laughs> That's not even what I was talking about. I, I know it wasn't. But, um, but yes, so Diderot, well, as you say, is uh, a highly acclaimed philosopher. Now, this book itself um, did not receive very high praise when it was first published, or even within decades after its publication. Okay. I don't think it actually received high praise until after Diderot's death. I don't... I, was it not... Even published until after his death? No, it was published during his lifetime. Okay, it was. Um, but Something I read implied that it, it wasn't. But mm. Well, it took a long time for him to write. What does yeah. it say? He wrote it between... It began... Or it was written between 1755 and 1784. So almost 30 years spent yeah. in the writing of this book. Um, which that itself is kind of phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, I can kind of see it. Um, just the way the book is written, because it does just jump all over the place. But that's kind of, it's its own, it, it's by design that it jumps all over the place that way, too. Yeah. Like, it, it, it's meant to be funny. It's meant to be something you laugh at, which I want to say I think is ultimately, I, I, I don't know a whole lot about Diderot's philosophy, but I want to say that's ultimately where Diderot himself comes down on the question of fate, is laugh. <laughs> <laughs> That that seems very valid, because I I think the obvious like surface level reading of this book is all about the question of fate. Yep, and I think it's only a surface level reading of this book. Yeah, um, like I I think back to uh, some of the the uh, classes in like literary criticism or dramatic mm-hmm. criticism that I took as an undergrad, right? And you always had. So, so those those were like seminar classes where yeah. you, you you're at a at an advanced level. You're supposed to be reading these critical essays and coming to class with um, discussion points that you want to raise. And part of your grade for any given class session, which obviously um, folds into your semester grade, would be to talk. So if you talk, yeah, depending on the the teacher, you talk two to four times per class, you get a certain amount of discussion points. Um, you, you know, those add up, and eventually in, in that, like, segment of the syllabus, you get an A for the class, hopefully. Right. Um, so, 
my experience with some of those classes was that some people who were taking a given criticism class for their major um, who didn't necessarily care about the the more cerebral aspects of these things would just give the most like lazy surface level reading of a given text yeah um, just just to, and do it twice and mostly not say anything um, but they would get in their like discussion points for the day right mm-hmm. so if I were that student doing this text for a class like that, I would talk all about fate mm-hmm. and nothing else. Sure. And the whole fate versus free will thing. And and that's totally valid, but it's not the yeah. thing that this book is about. It's not it's not an invalid topic to raise. But you might even say that the title is a bit of a red herring. At, well, <laughs> it uh, goes I, back to something we raised in at least one if not both of the Evelyn Hardcastle episodes. Yeah. Um the difference between what story or what narrative a character thinks they're in the middle of versus what narrative they're actually in the middle of. Yes, uh, and like for the the master here, I might say, is the one who thinks he's in the narrative of the question of fate. Yes. Whereas for Jacques, it's a foregone conclusion. And you're you're very much right with Jacques that it is a red herring because he knows what he thinks and instead of and that's saying not gonna that change. he's saying what he wants to say in a given yeah. um situation mhm his his whole answer so Jacques answers a lot of questions or points out a lot of things by saying well it was written up above or as my captain would say it was written up above you know going back to okay. his captain as the one who instilled this fatalism in him Put and, a pin in the phrase that was written up above, because okay. I have more to say about that. But okay. go on. Uh, well, his, um, it, it's, it's just, it's a dismissive answer for him. Right. Because it's like, no, this is, this is my philosophy, this is what I believe, and, you know, I don't care if you believe it or not, because it doesn't have any bearing on my philosophy. Right. And so we're going to talk about other things. So, yeah, he, he goes on, is, is ultimately my point. He just, right. he continues whatever philosoph- philosophical discussions come into it, he doesn't care. Right. He's moved on from that. So, uh, what did you want to say about written up above? Is that is that where is that what you what you got on that? Yeah, that's pretty much what I wanted to say I'm as far kind as of that derail goes. Derail everything you just said. That's all right. Um, okay, so this is uh, immediately one of those cases where, um, like we did with Don Quixote, we sort of figured out and then purposely double down on the fact that we're reading two different translations by two different translators yes. mm-hmm. of this book. Um, because, and this is going to lead into problematizing the fact that Jacques is actually a fatalist, period, even in his own mind. Mm-hmm. Um, in my translation, which is uh, by J. Robert Loy, which according, I have, the copy I have, I picked up for like a dollar in a used bookstore. It has that great 60s, like, classic paperback, popularized paperback art. Mm. It claims to be the first English translation of this novel. Oh, interesting. Um, which is interesting, especially if it comes 150 plus years after the novel's publication. Right. Um, it could be a reprint of an earlier translation, but... Um, sure, sure. Not sure. Anyway, so... Mine is translated by Michael Henry, okay. just as a, as a note in... Late 1900s. Okay. So. Um, so, 
what we're talking about here is the repeated sort of dismissive phrase, but it's almost a verbal tick that Jacques has. Yeah. Supposedly is a fatalist who believes in in fate and believes that, you know, everything is is uh, preordained and you can't change it. Um, I don't know. This is actually the only work by Diderot that I've read, so I don't know what his philosophical position was, but it seems like he's been influenced by some of that, like, French Calvinism that mm. would have been popular yep. certainly a hundred years before he wrote, and right. probably its lingering effects would have been oh, absolutely. felt in France. Um, okay, so Jacques, Jacques says... You know, oh well, I couldn't think of in one in one bit that I just happened to look at. Um, I couldn't think of the word because it was written that I wouldn't think of it. Yep, it, it was fate. So in your translation, he says written up above. In my translation, he says written up yonder. Up yonder, huh? Yeah, which is an interesting first. I, I have a specific bit of the book that I want to go to. Okay, that this affects. But first, I just to focus on those two. Uh, the di- spatial difference between those two words. Sure. Right? Um, you have, you know, you conceptually you could argue that they're the same. They're talking sure. about fate, that things are preordained. Up above has this obviously skyward, divine, divine, godlike yep. quality, right? Up yonder is more, instead of, instead of focusing you like literally upward towards the sky, you're more focusing on a head. Yeah, like it's, it's more walking, horizontal direction. Yeah, exactly. If you're walking a certain direction, it's the direction you're walking. And the implication, obviously, still being that you can only walk that particular direction. Mm-hmm. Um, until you get to... Uh, and we have wildly different, wildly different paginations, but it's a ways into chapter one. Does your um, book have chapters? Does yours not? Mine doesn't have chapters. Oh, that's interesting. It's all written in one continuous narrative. Oh, that's fascinating. Yep. Man, it would be good if we did research for this Yeah, if we actually figured out what that was all about. Yeah. Because, actually, yeah, the chapters that mine is divided into, like, directly influenced some of my interpretation of this book. Oh, okay. So that's interesting. Um, Okay, so it's, it's towards the beginning... Um, I'm going to say easily in the first, like, 20th of the book, um, Jacques' master, or I think it's Jacques' master, gets his watch stolen. Sure. Um, and Jacques goes to pursue the thief, and the thief seems to have sold it in really what seems like record time to an itinerant salesman, um, who is walking along and... Um, Jacques and his master are approaching a certain castle, uh, and Jacques passes one of those, and I'm quoting here, one of those itinerant merchants called peddlers, and cries, the peddler cries out, my fine gentleman and lord garters belts, watch change snuff boxes of the latest style, rings, watch fobs, a watch, sir, a watch, a handsome gold watch engraved, double case, like new. Uh, Jacques replies, well, I am looking for one, but it's not yours. And he continues on his way, still at a walk. But going along, still quoting, going along, Jacques believed that he saw written up yonder that the watch the man had Mm -hmm. offered him was his master's watch. Um, And of course, as those of us who've read the novel know, this gets Jacques into all sorts of trouble because he doubles back and tries to 
say that, you know, this is a watch that belongs to him. And the peddler, of course, was like, no, I bought this watch fair and square. And it's a whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. But when I first read this, not knowing anything about any other translation, he believed that he saw written up yonder that the man... the that the watch the man had offered him was his master's watch. We've already had parts of this novel, even before this relatively early passage, that indicate uh, where where Diderot, or the the narrator, however you want to interpret Mm -hmm. that, he drops in, um, like, in my translation, ten pages before this. He just directly addresses and says, It's quite evident that I'm not writing a novel for I neglect to use what no novelist would fail to use. So when I read this, yep. my my interpretation off the top of my head was that Jacques saw written up yonder in this book that uh, the watch was his master's watch. Yep. That somehow Jacques could see along the, you know, this is like... The lines of the plot. Yeah, the, it's a, it's yep. a Rocky and Bullwinkle-esque, like... Uh, uh, narrative violation, but already in the rules established in the first 20 pages of this novel, it would not be uh, outside of the boundaries of what Diderot is doing yep. here. Um, so you have this beautiful, and again, this could be a completely invalid interpretation based on a poor translation choice, but what it gives you is this wonderful ambiguity where everything is written up yonder and Jacques knows this and believes this and because of that he can change what's happening or he can act accordingly. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I, I want to say I did find the spot you were quoting. It's on page 41 in my translation. As he was going, he thought he could see that it was written up above that the watch this man had offered him was his master's. So that difference is not there in my translation. Yeah. But, like, still, never, ne- nevertheless, the the idea of Jacques being able to see the narrative. Right. Being able to see what was written up above and therefore to act upon it would itself seem to imply that he can defy fate. Right. (laughs) Exactly. And I think that's, if you look just a little bit more deeply than the surface level, that almost defines Jacques' entire character. Yeah. He doesn't act like someone who believes that fate is pre-written, he acts like someone who believes no. that he can read fate and act accordingly. And, and I think, you know, even if you go beyond this whole meta idea that he's reading the book that's written about him, he is using fatalism as an excuse to do yes. what he wants. Yes. More than one time... Because it, it's interesting, uh, Michael, I think when you read a book, you underline and annotate, like, more or less from the beginning. At least yep. usually you do. Um, what I've found both... Because my major rereads for this podcast have been Don Quixote and this book, Shock the Fatalist. And what I've found is that I don't annotate the first time, but I annotate the heck out of the book the second time I'm mm. reading it, especially if I'm, I know I'm discussing it. Um, and more than once in annotating this one did I write, is Jock giving in to fate or is he creating fate? Right. Yeah, which is, that's, that's a fascinating... <coughs> fascinating dialogue to have because he does both almost like yes. he does seem to resign himself to unpleasant situations uh there's what am i thinking of yeah i know there are occasions when he does it i'm not gonna find because again i don't have chapters in mind so i can't really but, it's harder for me to find yeah. <laughs> spots in here but 
Like, no, he does, like, allow himself to undergo unpleasant situations. But it's almost like those are the times that he martyrs himself to fate, so fate yes. can serve him a good turn other Later. times. Almost almost like a karmic balance yeah. idea. Um, which, if, if Diderot believed, he almost certainly wouldn't phrase it that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... Jacques the Fatalist is kind of a misnomer itself. Yeah. Because he's not a pure fatalist. He will allow that belief in fate. And like you say, it's a verbal tick for him to say, well, it was written up above. Yeah. It's, or it's a defense mechanism for him exactly. at that point. Actually, that's, that's literally what I was starting to say, is that sometimes... If, you're, if, if he doesn't even allow himself to go through things, he goes through things that he finds unpleasant and then says... Well, it was written up above. Almost yeah. as if to say, well, I could, there's nothing I could have done, which is a classic defense mechanism. Yes. Which doesn't, which isn't an invalid defense mechanism, but it is a, a very mm-hmm. sort of um, basic one. Um, we talked about the idea of, of fate and um, nature and stuff in Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn yeah. Clark Castle. It's interesting and how much some of the thoughts we had there dovetail, and I yep. don't know if that's just like... Because you, of the proximity, and yeah, proximity. I, I wanted to say confirmation bias, but proximity bias is almost a sure better way to phrase it. Yeah, and, and it's certainly possible. But the 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 question in Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle was that um, morality, the the triumph of morality within a vision of fate, yes. uh, was was prominent there. In this, however, morality doesn't seem to matter. I don't think I agree. Okay. Um, in fact, this is actually what I mentioned earlier uh, about the chapter divisions in this book. Mm. Um, so to give like you at least a rough idea, chapters one, two... So that's, it's divided into seven chapters. Okay. Chapters one and two are about the same length. Chapter three is about the length of one and two combined. Hmm. Um, chapters four, five, and six are all short-ish. Um, and then chapter or chapter six isn't isn't shortish. It's longer. Hmm. And then chapter seven is shortish, and that's just kind of the denouement where um, Diderot ties everything up in a neat little bow, which we'll have to address eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but, so we've got seven chapters, and, um, it's, it's almost comforting to me that yours doesn't have, uh, chapter divisions, uh-huh. partly because sometimes I did struggle to, uh, try to determine what the different chapters were, like, why, what the logic of the division why, was. Why, why have a chapter break here? Why have a chapter break there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, certainly the first time I was trying, the first time I read it, I was trying and completely failed. Um, the second time that I read it, I, the thesis that I came up with was that the chapter breaks were along philosophical lines and not plot or character lines. Okay. Because certain of the plot points continued through. Sure. Um, whereas, uh, Character-wise and plot-wise, they almost seemed arbitrary, but philosophically, that's, they were breaking. That's a fascinating idea, and I, you know, I don't know anything about your chapter breaks, but you know, I, I'm 
knowing just from reading the book that you know the narrative does kind of continue through at various points, but then you get a shift in philosophy yeah. or philosophical emphasis right in the middle of the plot. So, um, I'll just uh, yeah go ahead because what I on this reread that I did, I ended up some of it was was retconning like I was on later chapters and had a thought about earlier chapters but I did end up writing things below each chapter break mm. um, so I'll just go through and read these and we can maybe circle back and sure. uh, um, go into them and in discuss. some more detail so chapter one I wrote what is virtue oh okay um, and then Later, I, I wrote some more questions. Is the world knowable? Is it deterministic? Um, and how do the answers to these questions affect virtue? Mm, mm-hmm. um, chapter two, I wrote, why be virtuous? Chapter three, what do we owe to each other? Is it right to take what we're owed for ourselves? Um, chapter four, I wrote, can we, with our actions... Uh, create virtue and punish vice or is it all written up yonder chapter 5 I wrote sex problematizes virtue or does it just beat it bloody (laughs) Um, chapter 6 I just wrote business like it seemed to be sort of about business or about money or capital okay but I wrote business versus, versus virtue, versus love, or versus both, all with question marks. And then chapter seven, I just wrote the happy ending with three question marks. <laughs> gotcha. All right. Uh, so did any of those like no, that's, that's, resonate with your reading? That's, that's a fascinating concept, because it, it does kind of introduce a, a, a Socratic sort of um, overlay to this whole discussion. And I wonder... Um, like the, I, I don't know how much the question of fate is central to all of this, too, because with those questions, is it a question of, okay, is what is virtue in the context of a fatalistic universe? Right. Or is it just what is virtue and we're using a fatalist as someone who is in the discussion here, or at least someone who claims to be a fatalist? And I think that um, the idea of virtue is problematized by whichever answer you come up with for the fatalism question. Right, and that's... Um, because part of what it makes me think of is a book that I haven't read, um, but I've read a fair amount about called Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, mm. um, which is considered either sort of a, a gothic novel or some people consider it like it advanced beyond gothic it's like a proto horror novel um but it's also considered and not necessarily as a different thing but an early serial killer novel mm. um so this this novel was written i believe in the late 1700s um so roughly co- you know uh co-chronological with Jacques Contemporary. Fables. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Thank you. Because um, chrono- chronological is Greek and temporary is Latin and co is Latin, so it should be Latin. Thank you. Um, and also, why use an ex- extant word when I made up you one could, do? You could do... You could, I, I would allow you to coin the word sumchronological. 
You would you would allow this? Synchronological? I appreciate that you would allow this. Because it's synchronous, which is basically already a word and also means contemporary, so... Well, you're ignoring my making fun of you, so I'm going to ignore I am ignoring you, just you said. because it was written up above that I would ignore you. Well, it was written up above that I would ignore you. So there. Um, <laughs> where was I going? Oh, so, um, in, in that book, you have almost the ultimate novelistic problematization of the Calvinist idea of double predestination. Um, mm. The idea that God picks out certain people to save and that no matter what they do, they can be saved. Because you have this person who essentially believes that, yep. this character that believes that, and goes and commits all kinds of just heinous murders and crimes um, with the assurance that he will be saved. Hmm. Um, and that is, you know... It, I, I'm, I'm struggling to not have us dive into the theological uh, quandaries that that raises, um, but even philosophically, the idea of fate creates the potential for that sort of situation. Right. If you believe what Jacques claims to believe, and I don't know that I believe he believes it, right. um, then you have a situation where literally anything you can do can be justified, including the most heinous crimes, because it was just predestined or pre-written, it was written. It was determined me, it was ahead of time that up you above, would do this. Written up yonder that you would kill these seventeen people and bury their body in the woods. Right. And if you didn't get caught, then that was also written up yonder. And if you did get caught, that was just your fate. Right. Um, whereas, in a sense, the opposite conclusion, the uh, the the uh, anti Jacques sequence or whatever it's not sequence but um philosophy i guess mm. the idea that free will is is complete and utter is terrifying mm -hmm. to us you know limited mortal human beings because then we're completely responsible for our, all of our actions right which means that if if inadvertently or otherwise we produce bad results um, or participate in something that produces bad results, then we are utterly responsible for that with no recourse. Mm -hmm. um, so, I guess part of what I think of Jacques is that he maybe has stared that void in the face and has come up with this idea of everything being written up above to avoid that, to be able to act as a free agent but without believing that he's a free agent. Yeah. Um, but within that, he's maybe haunted by the ghost of virtue. Sure. Well, and because, like, there, he's got to have a conscience. He's not a psychopath. Yeah. Uh, Jacques is not. And so, like, he does have to understand that not just consequences to his actions, but that there is a moral weight to his actions. Yeah. The, 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 the questionable nature of his fatalism, too, is brought out in the narrative by how often it is brought up that he inherited this from his captain. Right. His captain told him to believe this. Right. And so, like a good soldier, he did. Right. And that's... It, it's, it's derived. It's a derived fatalism. It's not something that he came to... Which, on the surface, you could say, well, he learned this, and then came to believe what he was taught. But 
Sure. Also, it's it's always emphasized in such a secondhand way. Right. Well, and it, it, there is an interesting parallel between Jacques and his master, this person that he takes orders from, and Jacques and his captain, this person that he takes orders from. Right. Um, which I think, again, uh, I, I don't remember where it is in the book off the top, but the scene at the inn where uh, Jacques basically says, like, I'm the servant and therefore I can do whatever I want. Yes. Because you're helpless without me. Um, reverses that idea so much that you could be, you could conclude that maybe Jacques had a similar relationship with his, his uh, captain, um, and that even though the captain did give the order, in a sense, for Jacques to believe this, Jacques also chose to believe it because he could have not chosen to and swayed the captain, potentially. Sure. If you, if you read that parallel. Right, if, if, you, if you understand it that way, the subservient one is the one that the dominant one is dependent upon. That, that comes right. out in the text, too. Um, it's on page 71 in mine. Um, we're talking about Jacques' horse darted off and they're separated for a bit. And the yes. paragraph says, And since Jacques and his master are only good when they are together and are worth nothing when they are separated, any more than is Don Quixote without Sancho <laughs> or Richardet without Farragut, which is something that Cervantes' continuator and Aristotle Ariosto's an imitator, Fortiguera, have not quite understood. Reader, let us chat while waiting them for them to meet up again. <laughs> like, pointing out, okay, Don Quixote is nothing without Sancho. Uh, right. There's an end note here. Um, uh-huh. I, I, I'll talk about it in a second, but just the idea, again, we're talking about Don Quixote, and the book itself references Don Quixote. Right. It is very conscious of the relationship between the master and Jacques as the relationship right. between Don Quixote and Sancho. Right. But, whereas I think in Don Quixote... Don Quixote takes a much more central role than the master here. The master here only serves Jacques. Right. Jacques is the central character. The master is a side character to him. Uh, so that's that's a, an antithetical parallelism there. But right. uh, my end note here says, um, uh, Niccolo Fortiguera was the author of Ricciardetto, Ricciardetto, a burlesque version of Ariosto's Orlando Furioso. Okay. Uh, Richardet and Fergus are characters in Fortiguera's work, but then the sentence I want to pay attention to is, the continuator of Don Quixote is Luis Aliaga, who published his continuation under the name of Alonso Fernandez de Avellaneda. So this editor has decided that this Luis Aliaga, or Luis Aliaga, I don't know, Mm. is actually the real Avellaneda. Right. Which we discussed in our discussion of Don Quixote is not actually determined historically, and so this editor is coming down this in one camp of yep. a several camp historical debate that will probably never be right resolved in sort of a smoking gun right manner. right, and so I object is kind of my point there <laughs> yeah, but fair. the the whole point again is it, he's right here at this point that Don Quixote is nothing without Sancho right. It, it it he depends on Sancho. Without right. Sancho, he can't be. He almost can't navigate because can't. Exactly. Sancho translates between the the miasma of chivalric romance that Don Quixote is lost in and the real world that he's meant to guide Don Quixote through. Right, which just feeds into this point that um, Jacques too is right when he points out that 
the master is nothing without him. Yes, he and almost sort of a. Um, in in this book, it almost sort of unmasks that. In Don Quixote, sure. that relationship it's certainly there, but it's it's hidden behind a yeah. lot of sort of uh, grandiose language and behind Don Quixote's own um, delusions. Which, <clears throat> if the reader is sympathetic and not particularly penetrating, they might get the reader might get swept yeah. up in. Whereas in this, there's there's no there's almost no ambiguity to it. Right, right. It's, um, it's I mean, it, it's written in stone here where yeah. it's just implied in Don Quixote. Exactly. Um, I would like to point out a couple things still from the first few pages. It's page 35 in my translation, but my translation starts on page 29. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jacques and his master are at the first of several inns that they go to. So, uh, and they're... Getting ready for bed, I think, and the master says, "Jacques, what a devil of a fellow you are! You believe then?" And Jacques says, "I neither de- I neither believe nor disbelieve." But if they had refused to go to bed, this is after Jacques had like faced down some of these mm. brigands mm-hmm. or whatever. Jacques says that was impossible. The master, why? Jacques, because they didn't refuse. The master, if they had gotten up, Jacques, it would have been for better or for worse. Um, the master, if, 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 shock, if, if, if the sea boiled, there would be, as they say, a lot of cooked fish. Mm-hmm. Uh, what the devil, sir? I, a little while ago, you believed that I was in great danger and nothing could have been more false. Now you think that you're in great danger and nothing again is more false, perhaps. <laughs> All of us in this house, we are afraid of each other, which proves we're a bunch of fools. And this is to emphasize at a point in the story where Jacques has... Done the, like, French 18th century equivalent of, like, telling off a bunch of Hell's Angels or whatever. (laughs) And, like, has barricaded him and his master in their room so those guys don't get them. Um, And, you know, now is just getting ready for bed like nothing has happened. Um, Right. uh, A couple pages later, Jacques says, Prudence does not assure us of a good outcome, but it consoles us and excuses us for a bad one. And earlier in that paragraph, here's like your money quote for what I've been saying about Jacques. Is it we who lead destiny or is it destiny that leads us? Mm -hmm. So Jacques, despite the fact that at other times he seems very dogmatic about this fatalism, this determinism, um, actively, even from the beginning of the book, he starts questioning this idea yeah, no, and it, it, it's it's very heavy in here that he does not, his verbal tick, his defense mechanism, seems itself a defense mechanism at all things, that consolation that he's looking for right. in, in fatalism, that it couldn't have been any other way, so right. it's, you know, that that way madness lies to think right. what if that if question if 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 which is so emphasized and that if yes. the sea was boiling there would be as the saying goes an awful lot of fish cooked um that it's it, it's absurd to yeah say if because yeah. it wasn't right and it's interesting because i think this is in some senses it's going along with a lot of 18th and 19th century popular philosophy mm. um this this idea of fatalism and determinism yeah. became very popular, um, but 
to the perceptive reader, it's it's very much jabbing at that. It's it's uh, taking some of it to its logical conclusion and saying mm-hmm. this isn't logical. Um, right, like I mean, you brought up Calvinism already, which had already yeah. taken pretty hefty roots yeah. here at by this time, and so you know, Diderot didn't invent this idea. Right of it is written up above. The the captain is a Calvinist to that extent. Right, like it's it, he he's steeped in something that already exists. Diderot is developing upon that idea a little more right. and examining it and examining what it does mean. I think you know to an extent of what that what would that mean for virtue? Where does virtue play in our society if that philosophy exists? Yeah, and I think that that the the idea of what I think you have is two um, two sets of tensions that are in tension with each other. Mm-hmm. So one set of tensions is the uh, uh, <clears throat> determinism slash fatalism versus free will. The other set of tensions is uh, basically that question of virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, should we be virtuous? Why should we be virtuous? Um, versus why should we not just be hedonistic and yeah. do what we want? And I think all four of those tensions are in a divide with each other. Mm. So you have you have sort of dichotomies within dichotomies. Um, another one I wanted to point out from early in the book, uh, 48 in my book that starts on 29, mm-hmm. um, is a long paragraph describing the master... Um, maybe the first and probably the most robust like character description we get of him mm-hmm. um, and it's some pretty direct like what a creative writing teacher would call showing as opposed to telling but i I focused in on a few like repeated words and concepts in this paragraph, so I'm gonna just start part way through it uh, if I can turn the page. So, describing the master, he has two eyes like you and me, but you don't know most of the time if he is seeing through them. He doesn't sleep, but he doesn't stay awake either. He lets himself exist. That's his usual function. This automaton kept going on, turning from time to time to see if shock were coming. Um, mm-hmm. So, this the word automaton used yep. in association with the master. Um, I'm going to skip skip part of the paragraph. Then he, the master, would look for his watch in his vest pocket where it was not to be found, and that was the last straw, for he did not know what might happen to him without his watch, his snuff box, and Jacques. Mm -hmm. Um, And multiple times as we proceed throughout this book, uh, we have the master go through this automaton-like routine Mm -hmm. where he takes out his watch and looks at it, he takes a pinch of snuff from his snuff box, and then he turns to try to provoke Jacques into telling more of his story. Whether the story of his loves. I was going to say the story of his loves or whatever else other story mm-hmm. that they're on, but usually it's centered around that idea yeah. of the story of his loves. Which just kind of emphasizes the, the, the common theme uh, that connects the master and Jacques is they need a comfort object. Yeah. They need something to comfort them. They're both lost in this world, in a sense, without knowing what is happening. Right. And so they need something to fall back on. For Jacques, it's the fatalism of his captain. 
for the master, it's Jacques. <laughs> right. And the snuff box and the pocket watch. Which is inter- an interesting characterization of the master because it does, um, for him, his identity uh, and certainly his like comfort objects are built out of his wealth and privilege. Mm. A wealthy person has a servant. He can afford a fancy watch that a guy might steal. Um, and he can afford snuff. Like, that's yep. all, you know, very wealthy things. Yep. Whereas Jacques, this this low-class servant, has to fall back on philosophy and reading and these things yep. that are available to him. Yeah, it's man. kind of an interesting reversal. Yeah. Uh, but that, that, that characterization of the master continues all the way to the end. Uh, at yeah. the end, when they are finally separated, it says, There was not a single time that he, the master, took a pinch of snuff, nor a single time that he looked to see what time it was that he didn't say with a sigh, what has become of my poor Jacques? Yes. Like, he's still yearning for that comfort object of Jacques himself. Right. Um, where before he had him, and it was combined with the snuff box and the pocket watch. Now he's got the snuff box and the pocket watch, but he doesn't have Jacques anymore. Right. And he's yearning for that. Um, though, what I did want to focus in on in that uh, that passage early on... Yeah. Um, so you've got... Automaton, which is a word that's repeated both in this passage and later throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got the watch, which of course becomes a very symbolic yep. object. It's about to get stolen, or it, yeah, it's it's like stolen on yeah, the same about page with that. Yep. Um, and it reappears in various other passages throughout the novel, or whatever this is. Um, <laughs> like I remember you writing on the plains, a novel, a provocation, a philosophy, and I thought. Yeah, probably could have written that on. The, could have done the same thing to this, this. Um, except that the the narrator very vehemently objects that it is not a novel, and therefore I say boo. Um, anyway, yes, very good. Anyway, um, what I was what I was taking partly out of this passage is the idea that I've dwelt on a lot as I've read popular theology or non-academic theology and also philosophy um, and into literature from various time periods uh, where it has occurred to me that conceptions of God, and Mm -hmm. I'm doing a very broad definition of God here where you could have like a non-personal God, like fate could Mm -hmm. be God or destiny could be God or even nature could be God, but whatever you take for, for God, for the base purpose or wellspring of existence often in different periods gets characterized in whatever term in terms of whatever technology is most exciting Hmm. for a given period Mm -hmm. um so you know these days we like to talk about um especially a lot of like christian apologists talk about god creating um sort of creating a space for chance, right? Like, yeah. um, and that, that parallels with advancing ideas of like artificial intelligence and quantum computing. You have all of these, um, structures and relationships that rely on pure chance. Um, you know, we're getting down into atoms that even your fricking Schrodinger's cat nonsense, you're into, <laughs> atoms that either break down or they don't and they that seems to rely on pure chance but greater operations are built up out of reactions that might or might not occur Mm -hmm. um but that's 
where our technology is going. Our technology, in some senses, is getting so advanced that it has to rely on not necessarily chain causal chains, but on spaces for things to happen or not happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whereas in the 18th and 19th centuries, clockwork mechanisms yeah. and um, you know sort of machinery was getting extremely advanced. Um, and I don't think it's a coincidence that at the same time you had the idea, the the phrase coming out of this era of God as the blind watchman. Yep, the, the deist philosophy or theology was right. really strong. Right, but you had all these ideas that were very prevalent, again, 18th, 19th yep. centuries, that the universe was this vast sort of mechanism. Yep. That if you could zoom out far enough, or that if you could recreate each atom in the universe, you could simulate the universe in in sort of a one for one to one way. And I don't think it's a coincidence that all of those things come in metaphors and in terms of um watchmakers and automatons and yeah um, looms even sometimes. Like Mark Twain wrote a very a piece where he almost argues for a very Calvinist determinism called What is What is Man and he talked about people in terms of looms that they could produce very beautiful things, but only based on what was fed into the mechanism in the first place. Sure. But they could never get outside of that. Right, which which seems, like, technologically, comparatively, like, limited, very limited in view to what we have now. Right. And so the, the question of fatalism versus free will seems far more primitive right. to us, which, again, is not the main... I don't think, point of this book right. is, uh, I think that's kind of a backdrop here, which I think is part of, again, why this book didn't receive a lot of yeah. interest the time of its publication. It was maybe more advanced than its, it its was time. Almost, yeah, beyond its time, yep, philosophically. Yep. Um, and so why, why it gained more acclaim over time, because you know, also technology advanced, and therefore perceptions uh, advanced as well. Um, but also just the idea of a linear progression of advanced thinking. I don't know if that necessarily applies either because I think there were people besides Diderot thinking in the same terms or Mm. beyond the idea of fate versus free will and thinking that's not a dichotomy. That's not a true dichotomy. Right. And, um... I mean, we could we could spend a whole hour talking about uh, Erasmus versus Luther right. on the bondage of the will and the freedom of the will, and that I, I don't think that would be totally out of place here. But also, it's like the the point is that's not the point, right? Yes. <laughs> um, and so it's it, it's a fascinating entrance into a discussion uh, of virtue, of morality, of what life means where such dialogues of free will versus fate are become occurring. relevant in a way yeah. that they aren't until you right. make that journey in the first place. And I think um that the it's almost like this this novel is trying to clear a space for some of those dialogues to happen sure. in a more interesting way because 
Um, it's it like I think it's interesting that one of your instincts regarding this novel was to say that virtue is irrelevant to it. Um, yeah, because I I don't think that that was a completely wrong interpretation. I think that the way that virtue was talked about at the time, or the way that you'd expect from a novel of this time, is a very deterministic view of virtue mm. in the sense that. Um, Virtue was viewed as this duty, and if you you, if sure. you drill down into the concept of duty, it contains a at least somewhat deterministic idea that you owe something to someone else, yeah, um, and therefore you behave in a certain way. So, like, sure. you owe your mother for bringing you into the world; therefore, you care for her in her old age. And I sure. think, and I and I, we're obviously getting um, right butt up against the end of our time here, so we can go into some of this more in the next episode. But I think what Diderot, maybe part of what he wanted to accomplish here was to clear that out, because in a sense, if you're doing something because you have to do it, it's not a virtuous action. Sure. Um, so I think that maybe he wanted to create a space to say, maybe I care for my mother because I love her from a purer standpoint and I don't need to go back to those ideas of duty and determinism in order to make well, me do it. He's making the whole concept of determinism or fatalism and the whole concept of pure free will both entirely laughable. Yeah. That's what he accomplishes in yeah, this book. He makes absolutely. both of those laughable and says... no. Uh, Move yeah, on. in fact, because uh, I want to emphasize what you said right at the beginning of this. This is a funny book. Yes, exactly. And I feel like it's we've hysterical. gotten away from that, possibly inevitably, because it was written up yonder over the course <laughs> of this episode. But it's a funny. It's so sometimes funny. like sophomorically Rocky and Bullwinkle level. Yes, funny. Uh huh. Funny uh-huh. book. Cartoonish. It's just, oh, it's funny. Yeah. So, yeah, let's maybe, let's maybe quit at that point. Just, it's funny. I don't funny. think we're going to get to a better Back to the idea. Part no, one of this. Of it's, it's funny. We'll talk more in the next episode. Um, so continue reading along with us as we, uh, as we are discussing uh, Jacques the Fatalist. If you have thoughts, uh, go to the contact section of the Tapestry Radio website, uh, put Scotch Talk in the subject line, or at us on Twitter, at Room with Scotch. Uh, or in, on Facebook in the Tapestry Radio Tap House. If you request to join, we'll let you in, unless you're a fatalist or a free willian. Um, <laughs> unless it was written up yonder. Unless it was written up yonder. We'll still let you in. I, I did want to say by free willian, I was talking about whales. Obviously. Um, anyway. As um, long as you're a free willian and not a free willian, willian too. Yep, that one. Uh... Also, we'll do your homework. We don't promise to do it well, but we condone plagiarism because it's funny. Uh, just like fatalism. At least when you do it with our thing, because... Yeah. Yep. Fatalism... It will, it will be funny plagiarism. to someone, we promise. Well, plagiarism is also funny as, funny in this book. That's true. Um, but, uh, anyway, go to our website, tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. Fill out the homework form there. We'll do our best. We'll make it fun. You can hand it in to your professors or teachers. And we will laugh at you as, as you, you are go arrested in jail. Go to jail. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> if you like this podcast, check out our other shows on the Texas Radio Network, like Intermission, the Backstage Drama Podcast, 
and Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play podcast. Uh, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars. Uh, only rate five. Us, only five. Yeah. Rate us other places. Also five stars. Because five is good, one is not. Or whatever the whole... The whole rating system star ratio is. Yep. Yep. All that. Rate us a hundred percent forever. One hundred percent. Unless one hundred percent is one hundred percent bad. All right. We're we're trying anyway. too hard now. Yep. All right. Yep. Just give us good stuff. Um. Yeah. That's that's what I wanted to say. Um, uh, read my web comic, Pin Porter Girl Detective, the fairy tale noir. Detective comic about a 12-year-old girl and her talking fancy pigeon who solve fairy crimes. It's better than I just made it sound. <laughs> and the art is very good, which I'm not responsible for at all. So, uh, pinporterdetective.com or Google pinportergirldetective. It's good, I promise. Yeah. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L or in the uh, tap, tap House on Facebook. Uh, chat me up and I will respond probably. And yeah, um, I think that's that's it for yep. this one. It was written up above that this is where the podcast would end. So until next time, just remember, and it's our party. If it was written up above, that we would cry at our party. Bye. We love.
obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.